And so I found it necessary to have a little bit more work-life balance, find hobbies that aren't just statistics. And believe it or not, I did consider this rent stabilization working group to be a hobby of mine. Mm. Um, <laughs> Kim, this is a sad, a sick, sad hobby that you have. It, it was not as fun as redistricting. I will say redistricting was more fun in my opinion. Redistricting um, was fun. We got a whole other episode to do on your redistricting experience, I guess. I would love to talk about What was fun about the redistricting it. work group? <laughs> I think... This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 This is the Wedge Life Podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. In today's episode, it's another one about rent control. You may have heard my episode with Jennifer Arnold of Inquilinos Unidos, and I recommend people go back to that for the basics. My guest today is Jonathan Kim, who was a member of the city's rent stabilization work group. Welcome to the episode, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, John. I don't want to do the basics. As I said, I want to like hit some key points and hopefully we can make this a quick episode for people because I don't think people want a series of hour long episodes on rent control. (laughs) Or maybe we talk about who you are. Uh, what, What is, what is your housing situation? What is your interest in this issue? Why would you volunteer to devote an extreme amount of your time to serving on the, this work group. Uh, Tell us about you. Yeah, certainly. So I am a uh, fifth year graduate student at the University of Minnesota. I'm working on a PhD in biostatistics, which is basically just statistics applied to medical or public health data. And uh, yeah, I'm a renter. I served on the working group as a renter. And my interest was partially personal. Um, my bachelor's degree is in economics. So I'm always had kind oh. of an interest in economic policy, uh, even though I did not choose to pursue a career in economics. Um, and then, yeah, I also have a passion for local government type stuff. Uh, I served on the city's redistricting group and really enjoyed that. And so it was time for me to choose another city group to serve on. So- so I don't do enough research on my guests. And, uh, <laughs> it's it's good when you end up with exactly the right person. I didn't know the whole economics thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, and and you voted with the majority uh, for the stronger policy, the three uh, percent. And we'll get into a little more of the details. Why why did you like that policy uh, over the other one? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, um, you know, if I. I came into this group not really having a super strong opinion on rent stabilization. Um, I do think that my economics background, um, rent control slash rent stabilization is kind of used as like a canonical textbook example of like regulatory policies that don't work uh, is typically how it's framed in most uh, economics classes, at least econ 101. Uh, And usually they'll draw, you know, the... crisscross supply and demand curves and 
rent control is usually used as an example of what's known as a price ceiling. So uh, can't charge above a certain level, and usually it's portrayed as, you know, oh, this means that the equilibrium, the market can't achieve equilibrium, and there are going to be shortages and all that. Um, you know, so that's typically how it's presented, but there's usually not a very nuanced um, presentation about what policy actually looks like. Like I said, even framing it as a price control or a price ceiling is not completely accurate because you're implying that there's like a maximum price that you can't charge above. And especially when we talk about rent stabilization versus rent control, um, some people argue that's a not a meaningful distinction. Uh, the Cura report uh, which I believe was referenced in the previous episode. That was a report commissioned, I believe, by the city council. Um, talks about how rent control usually refers to kind of the first generation of policies that was passed kind of in the wake of like World War II. And typically those are the more classical example of like price controls. And then rent stabilization is more referring to kind of a second generation of policies that became more popular like in the 70s. And that was more where you're... Uh, capping you're still allowing price increases over time but you're capping the maximum increase oh am, am i learning something right now jonathan i use them <laughs> interchangeably i'm one of the people who uses them interchangeably and i didn't i don't know that i realized rent control was like you can't go over this amount at all I, no increases at all ever. something like that i mean that would be that's sometimes also referred to as like a price freeze um but yeah i think at least if my reading of the cure report if my recollection of it is accurate, I believe that's more or less how it was framed. Okay. I will not push you further out onto this limb. <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> I, I, to so, be fair, I think, uh, I think some news publications like the star tribune, I think mentioned that they use them interchangeably because I guess not all economists it's, I don't think it's a standardized distinction, but it's a distinction that the cure report makes. And that was kind of a major source for our research. That's where a lot of my understanding comes from. So so you, with your economics degree, what won you over? Because I have to admit, I I have been more skeptical of rent control in the past, mm -hmm. and I am still I still am worried that we could get it wrong. Mm -hmm. But from your perspective, do you feel like you got won over? Like what what it, what was the process of winning you over to thinking this is the right approach? Yeah. So I guess. Um kind of going back to like what I was talking about, you know, how it's rent control is often portrayed in kind of intro econ 101 courses. Um, you know, that very uh, basic model of, you know, intersecting supply and demand curves. I think um, it's just that it's a model um, used to try to show how market dynamics work. And um, we have a saying in the statistics community, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And essentially, the idea is that, you know, when you make a model, you have to make simplifying assumptions. And those assumptions don't always line up with reality. But depending on the context in which you're using it, it might be useful. And so I do think kind of those fairly simplistic supply and demand curve models can be useful for illustrating broad dynamics to a classroom of undergraduates, for example. But when it comes to dealing with something as complex and dynamic as like a housing market, I think uh, I would, I'm more interested in looking at more uh, specific kind of empirical research on what has actually happened in places where it's actually been done. And so um, I would say one of the things that at least won me over to being open to some sort of rent stabilization policy is that um, 
the literature, at least that I've read on a lot of this is um, research that was provided to us on the working group. Um, it seems more mixed than it is conclusively like bad. You know, I think some people will say, oh, economists broadly agree that rent stabilization is bad. I think there was a Star Tribune like op-ed that said that, but they didn't actually, there's no citation exactly. And I think, you know, when you start looking at specific, more complex nuanced policies of rent stabilization, I do think that the literature is not quite as clear. Um, and several studies that were provided to us suggest that there are potential benefits. Um, and so I would say that from that starting point, I was certainly more open-minded to um, voting for a relatively stronger policy. There's so many moving uh, pieces. Mm -hmm. it, there's no like one rent control policy. Exactly. And so yeah. there are dif different uh, increase thresholds, 3% mm -hmm. or more different uh, jurisdictions. I, I don't know if any two rent control policies are exactly alike. And so uh, one of the things I'm concerned about, I don't, mm -hmm. Jonathan, maybe you can answer this. I think I know this to be true, but don't do most or all rent control policies exempt new construction. Is that, am I accurate on that? I believe that question was asked to uh, Ed Getz, I believe is his name. He was, I believe, the primary author of the Cura study, um, works for the University of Minnesota. Uh, he did a Q&A for us um, on both the report and his research and rent regulation more broadly. And I believe someone asked him that very question. And I believe his response was the only policy that he and his research team were aware of that did not exempt new construction in the United States was St. Paul's, which has now since been undone, I believe. So I am concerned potentially that the policy as recommended that doesn't exempt new construction will hinder uh, new development. And I know a lot of people have suggested that's exactly what happened in St. Paul. I don't know that enough time has passed necessarily. It's hard to like, hard to judge in one place over a short period of time right after mm -hmm. it happens. But that's something I'm worried about. Is that something you're worried about? Uh, the short answer is yes, I am. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty, I think. Um, as you say, no two policies are alike. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, obviously, as a statistics person, I like data, but it's also important to recognize the limitations of the data that we have. Um, there aren't a ton of cities in the United States that have tried rent stabilization. And so I don't think we really have a clear idea of exactly how things are going to pan out. I think we can have some reasonable idea. But anyway, going back to your original question, am I concerned? Yes, I am. But ultimately, I chose to vote for the stronger policy over the other policy, which I hesitate to look at that other framework, I guess we could say that was presented the minority report, I think, as you refer to it on your last episode, uh, the one that got 11 votes uh, on the working group. It's hard for me to see that as a really a rent stabilization policy, it seems much closer to like an anti rent gouging policy, just in terms of the large number of exemptions that it allows um, five to 7% rent cap plus CPI. Um, right. So, yeah, I think yeah, the 
the numbers on that, the increases would be so high, I'm not even sure it qualifies as anti-rent gouging necessarily. Uh, those would be some very, uh, I don't, I know I never had uh, increases like that. I was never subjected to increases like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Yeah, and I think the, I, I certainly came into this working group fully aware of the fact that, you know, city council, at least to my knowledge, never made a pledge to abide by the recommendations of the working group. Um, and as we've seen, you know, Mayor Fry has already come out against the recommendations or saying that he will veto. Um, so I was fully aware that it was very likely that there would be changes based on what we recommended. But I guess I would say I would prefer the that the starting point for the conversation be a the stronger policy over the much weaker policy. Did he ever specify exactly what his objection was? I know the 3% gets the headlines, but I don't know that 3% mm -hmm. is like, should be the sticking point. 3% plus or minus a percent seems reasonable to me. Uh, yeah, I would say, especially based on the Cure report, um, I know the Cure report has been misrepresented by a lot of people. I mean, I do understand that it's a very long and some people, I think it's exciting, but I'm not... Normal. I only I only viewed the slides. That's yeah. how you get around reading in a long report. <laughs> you just view the slides. Yeah. Uh, so the report, despite what people say, the report does not make any specific policy recommendations. Um, or if it does, right. I couldn't find them. Uh, but they did, I believe, like a simulation of like kind of how different percent caps would affect the market. And it did not seem like a 3% cap would have particularly... Yeah, they, if you if you view the slides, you can see they charted actual increases over two decades, and then they had another line, which was if if X policy had been enacted, and mm -hmm. typically the even the three percent line was below or was above what you know history shows us typical rent increases have been. So yeah, so, so I guess going back to your original question, uh, I. I'm not subscribed to the Star Tribune, so that was the only article that I saw trending about his comments. Um, so I don't know if it goes into more detail. I could not find a more specific set of objections or yeah. anything like that. So yeah, one of the one of the benefits of being Mayor Fry is you get to uh, you get to say no, and you don't have to say what your idea is because as soon as you have your own ideas and people take start taking shots at you, it's one of the great advantages uh, Mayor Fry has had is not having to have his own ideas, just uh, take pot shots at other people's ideas. So you signed on to the 3% with no exemptions, uh, that whole list, that more strict version. Were there things you were questionable on, but you're like, I'm going to sign on to this anyway. Maybe the new construct, the lack of a exemption for new construction qualifies as that. I don't know. But are yeah, there, would, are there things say, yeah. where you're like, I would have tweaked this a little bit but it was good enough for me. I'm signing on to this one and not the other. Yeah, I, I would say the biggest concern that I had was actually about enforcement and compliance. I think that from the beginning was the thing that I think seemed the least contentious. A lot of people seem to already have made up their minds about percent caps and like various core policy components and what should or shouldn't be exempt. But I never really saw like hard battle lines being drawn in terms of how it should be enforced or at the very least that didn't seem to be generating a lot of like you know various twitter threads i've seen of people having discussions about it that the enforcement mechanism never seemed to be something that caught a lot of people's attention and so i was hoping that we would get that that could be the part where 
I was when I started on the working group, I was hoping that we would devote more time to really exploring the different enforcement mechanisms. And I guess I would say that my primary concern was I wanted to see a really well enforced policy, even if it was maybe not as strong as I would like, for example, um, because I think if you have a really strong policy that's poorly enforced, that's not really going to do much of anything. So what is the way to enforce it? Uh, as I was channeling Lisa Goodman on the uh, previous episode, because I can hear her voice saying, we mm-hmm. can't do this. This is going to be really expensive. Lots of staff time that we don't have. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you, what do you think the city should do? Well, and I wish this was one of the parts that I think was very difficult about what we were tasked to do and the resources that we were given is I feel like the discussion was primarily based on like self monitoring enforcement, basically like having a self certification process um, for landlords to self certify, you know, am I exempt from rent stabilization or not? Exactly what that would entail was never made clear to us. Um, But it was, you know, this kind of and then having enforcement be incumbent on tenants to have to file a complaint, basically, um, if there was ever any noncompliance. And then it was basically that which I think is more or less what the weaker framework calls for um, that set of monitoring enforcement versus a more active form of monitoring and compliance, which is done by the city, which could either be an independent board or um, done within some city department. Um, and asking yeah, I, for I, weaker asking for weaker enforcement just seems like you know well I, because there were some landlords, uh, property owners on the the work group, and asking for weaker enforcement just means you get away with more. That's why you would advocate for that, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know why else you would ask for weaker enforcement. Yeah, I mean, I, the main argument that I think was presented was that it would be a cost saver. You know, can the city afford to staff and supply a you know a board to monitor compliance? But I mean, if I don't know, I, I think, like I said, we weren't given any sort of fiscal projections about how much would this cost, how much would different alternatives cost. So we couldn't really, we weren't really able to get into that. I mean, we we staff a uh, property tax uh, or property value appeals board for homeowners so they can go to a place and say, you know, my my value is too high. My taxes as a result are too high. So I don't know, 50 plus percent of the city are renters. Maybe we could have a board for that too, for those costs. Do you have a sense of how many people on the work group were there because they wanted a policy like they wanted maybe they didn't agree with a stronger form but they agreed that the policy was necessary and they wanted to get it right versus just trying to get in the way of of the more aggressive policy like yeah i i think it was pretty clear that you know this whole working group was you know I guess you could say the central conceit of this working group was that we were all open-minded, indifferent uh, people who were all going to come to the table. We were going to collaborate. We were going to have discussions. And then we were going to come to some consensus where we were all going to hold hands around a campfire and sing songs and talk about, you know, present this one unified framework. I, I, 
Jonathan, I believe the language was good faith. I don't mm-hmm. think they mentioned a campfire. You're exaggerating. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, there was no campfire in the uh, enabling resolution. But um, yeah, I, I think, and and that just was immediately obvious that that was not the case. Um, I mean, just looking at it, it felt a lot similar to the kind of song and dance routine that people play with the Supreme Court. Some who still try to pretend like they are indifferent, impartial arbiters. They're just trying to interpret the Constitution that completely ignores the blatantly partisan forces that affect who gets nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. And, you know, it was pretty clear looking at, I mean, I actually watched the city council meeting where they passed this enabling resolution and the negotiations that were going on as to which organizations get what seats and how many of this, how many of that. I mean, it was pretty clear that, again, you know, we were appointed the the seats were allocated based on certain individuals being assumed to have a certain mindset or another and i don't think that's necessarily a problem but i think it is a problem if you try to pretend that that's not the case when it is right i was so i watched that meeting too and it was basically like council member jeremiah ellison would be i want to have this renter advocacy group on the panel and lisa goodman was like oh you want that well now i want uh the landlord lobby i want mha on there i want the realtors you get one and i get one and i don't know as as you sort of hint there i don't know that that's necessarily productive when you've got and i was skeptical that it would re they would reach a stronger recommendation because i figured well this council is more conservative than the last one they're kind of aligned with jacob fry who obviously doesn't like the policy i didn't i just assumed that the game was rigged towards doing something about where the council is politically and it turns out that i think this recommendation is to the left of where the council is politically so that's a little bit surprising to me that this work group had membership to that is going to tug the council a little bit to the left i think yeah, I, I think it was, um, I think a lot of people, myself included, were frustrated by various aspects of the process. Um, so I know you, this was mentioned in the last episode, but, you know, with 25 people on the working group, we were broken up into five groups of five um, throughout the entirety of the process. I, I've used the phrase, we were siloed into groups of five. And um I understand that, you know, it is hard trying to wrangle 25 people. I think we had a difficult time wrangling 24 people on the redistricting group. You know, that's just, that's a lot of people. Um, But so I don't blame the fact that we started out in groups of five, but throughout the entirety, the entire process, we almost never got to interact with people outside of those groups. And so, um, and those groups seem to be kind of intentionally chosen to have a balance of perspectives. So like, couple people from like landlords and developer organizations, couple renters or tenant advocates. Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but then, you know, when there's no interaction with people outside of your group, there's a lot of perspectives that I just didn't get a chance to really learn from. And I think, you know, looking through the meeting notes, it wasn't always, they didn't always break down the various perspectives, who said what in each group, you know, so I didn't always know what perspective I was reading, looking at other groups notes. Um, so yeah, that was definitely a limitation of the process. You know, the use of a third party facilitator, um, Neo partners, I believe it was, um, 
I, I want to be charitable to them. I think every individual I interacted with from that group was very polite, professional. Um, I think they were trying their best, but it seemed pretty clear to me that I, it did not seem like they were, I mean, it seemed like they were a consulting group that they're not particularly, um, the individuals did not seem to have a lot of expertise in like this type of like rental policy work. And so there would be several times where we would be having like a group discussion and we would be having like a conversation. And then the person taking notes would basically say, okay, I have to fill in these boxes. How do I put what you just said into these boxes? And it was like, well, these boxes don't seem to have been designed by, it seemed, it seemed to have been designed by kind of a, like I said, a consulting group that just kind of applies a similar process to a lot of different clients and not necessarily one that was tailored for this very specific process. Which, which occurs to me could be a good thing because if you're bringing in a consulting group that is like specializes in rent control policy, I could imagine a lot of accusations like, well, see, this group has gone around to these cities recommending this policy, which I don't like, therefore they're biased. So that's a fair, probably good that they can just like take what you're giving them and not kind of warp it through their own expertise. Not that I don't like experts, but I mean, that's a fair point. But I guess what I was building up to one of the biggest limitations was when it came time for them to create the various frameworks for us to vote on. Um, you know, so listeners might know that we've been referring to the two frameworks, uh, the really strong rent stabilization policy and the really weak one as frameworks five and seven. Uh, so that implies that there were obviously more. Uh, and yes, in fact, there were 10 frameworks that we kind of voted on that kind of got tailored down to those two. Um, but the problem with those 10 frameworks is that those were constructed by basically giving everyone on the working group a list of all the different itemized components of a rent stabilization, all the core policy provisions, all of the monitoring compliance, all the exemptions. And we basically checked, put a check next to the ones we liked. And then they looked at kind of all the various responses and compiled sample frameworks based on that. But the problem with doing that is that some, a lot of, several of the frameworks didn't really seem coherent. Um, they were pairing policies that didn't necessarily seem to go together very well. Um, and so when it came time to actually vote, we had 10 options, but not all 10 options were what I would consider viable options. Um, right. Because like I said, they well, seem to have been constructed in this very like disjoint manner. There wasn't as much thought of how the different components interact. And there also weren't a lot of options for us to check in the first place. You know, like, uh, for example, I think y'all had a discussion about like CPI to adjust for inflation and how that's not a, may not be the best measure to adjust for housing costs, you know, and potentially considering other metrics, but then other metrics weren't really discussed. And so we never had the option to say, you know, I want a variable policy, just not CPI. That wasn't really an option. It was, you either want a fixed cap or you want um, CPI. Those were kind of the only two things you can vote on. And that, that's just an example. There were other policies where right. I think there were a lot of different ways you could have supported one thing or the other thing, but we didn't have the option to express that in how we voted. These are all valid criticisms, Jonathan, but mm. I feel like I am, I'm shocked that you ended up putting all those people in a room that you ended up with any recommendations at all. So they did something right to extract a recommendation from this, this group with a lot of diverging opinions. 
Yeah. And again, like I said, I, I, I want to be charitable to them. And you're right. I think the fact that we had anything at all is probably something to be happy with. I mean, maybe you can chalk this up to my uh, youth and inexperience. <laughs> in, I'm still relatively new to all of this sort of thing. So maybe... Uh, you- yeah, <laughs> you want things to make sense. <laughs> I do too uh, much an orderly mind. Sometimes you have to throw <laughs> everything at the wall and yeah. see see what shakes out. Throw ten things at the wall. A lot of them don't make sense, and maybe you come up with something. You know what I learned talking to, or maybe not learned, but I uh, came to a greater understanding talking with Jennifer Arnold was mm. the interaction between uh, vacancy control, which is a phrase you hear for many years just being kind of adjacent to rent control policy discussions Mm -hmm. and your, your eyes kind of glaze over and you don't know what it means, but like the importance of pairing vacancy decontrol, if that's the way you're going with just cause eviction, if you don't have just cause eviction protections for renters going the vacancy decontrol route just makes your rent control policy meaningless because landlords will force tenants out because as soon as the tenants out, no more rent control. I can set my rents whatever I want them to be. So I think it's a really important uh, key thing for people to keep in mind is mm-hmm. vacancy control is necessary unless you have pretty strong just cause eviction protections. Uh, did you want to speak to that or any any things like that where through through this process you've kind of you kind of think this is really important. I don't know. I think people are over-focusing on the 3% and not these other things. Yeah. Um, like I said, as I mentioned before, I do think that however, whatever comes out of this, whatever the city council ends up putting forward to the ballot, I do hope people pay more attention to, like I said, monitoring and compliance. And whatever that is, uh, I do think that is a key part of the policy that's easy to overlook. Um, yeah, I would also agree with that. I think just cause evictions. I mean, that was that was something that was mentioned a lot. That seemed to have more broad support than other policy ideas. It seemed like even people who were more skeptical of rent stabilization supported the idea of just cause eviction protections. Um, but that also didn't get a ton of um, discussion. I feel like it was, um, and I, I it might maybe it was com- complicated. I know in your episode, I I learned this from listening to that episode about how, I guess, a judge has halted or thrown out St. Paul's attempt at just cause eviction protection. So maybe that complicated things. I I don't know. And St. Paul, one of the changes they made to the rent control policy, one of the things I learned from Jennifer Arnold is the prohibition on rent control statewide, unless you enact it on the ballot, is that you also can't have just cause eviction protections. I guess that was the judge's reasoning. reasoning. And so... I, I think I had read at one point the state statute on that. And I I think if my memory serves correctly, the, the statute is written saying that regulations on rents is preempted unless you have the consent of the governed, you know, people right. voting on it basically. And so maybe just cause evictions. I wasn't specifically named, but maybe the judge's reasoning was that that also counts as regulation on rents. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. I yeah. can't tell you. It, it has since become the case that St. Paul has just cause eviction protections in their new partial vacancy decontrol uh, policy, which people can go look up on St. Paul's uh, city website. 
Well, Jonathan, I think we're we're coming to the end. Have I forgotten anything at all? Because I wanted to keep this short, but uh... <laughs> yes. Well, I certainly did have uh, criticisms of how I would have liked the process to have gone. I, you know, it was a good experience overall, and um, yeah, I I couldn't tell you what's going to come next. That's in the hands of our city council and our mayor, but um, and then ultimately the voters in November, hopefully. I hope we get the chance to vote on something. <laughs> are you going to run for office or something? Why are you getting yourself appointed to so many work groups? What is the bigger plan here for Jonathan Kim? <laughs> I, I don't think I have it in me to hold elected office. Um, the thought of campaigning uh, makes me sick. <laughs> um, yeah, me but, too. But no, I, uh, I, you know, grad school is a very isolating experience, at least in for me, uh, doing statistics and nothing but statistics makes me stop loving statistics. <laughs> and so I found it necessary to have a little bit more work-life balance, find hobbies that aren't just statistics. And believe it or not, I did consider this rent stabilization working group to be a hobby of mine. Mm. Um, <laughs> Kim, this is a sad, a sick, sad hobby that you have. It, it was not as fun as redistricting. I will say redistricting was more fun in my opinion. Redistricting um, was fun. We got a whole other episode to do on your redistricting <laughs> experience, I guess. I would what love was fun to talk about, about the redistricting it. work group. <laughs> I think it was just, it, it was so obscure and so specific. I felt like I got to understand I had a better understanding of that than rent stabilization, which I feel like there's just, like I said, a lot more uncertainty around. But um, yeah, I, I love I love obscure technical things that other people find boring. And I think I, as long as I have the, believe it or not, I do have time for the sort of thing despite being a grad student. And so I figure as long as I have time and energy for that sort of thing, I want to, I want to serve my city. <laughs> the most memorable thing about the redistricting work group for me was when they they cut out the aldi there was an aldi in ward four because one of the members of the worker was like you know the people who live around this park this is a community you cannot break them up they need to be together <laughs> and like the thing that got changed was an aldi because apparently looking at a map you don't know what buildings or businesses exist mm -hmm. on these things and so she thought it was really important that the aldi uh, was kept <laughs> kept together with the other residents around this one park in North Minneapolis, which I thought was hilarious. I, it did, I didn't remember end that up very coming. specific ordeal. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the Aldi. Was the Aldi eventually split off? No, that the Ward 4 and 5 boundaries were restored to what they had been for the previous 10 years. Okay, so Aldi is still uh, off by itself? Uh, it's Yeah, it's ward? wherever it was previously. <laughs> okay. Do you have any, what was your, what's your most memorable thing from the redistricting work group? Oh gosh. I mean, I think the thing that I thought was the most funny about it, well, funny and a little, I guess, unsettling was, uh, the Cedar Isles Dean Neighborhood Association making a very last minute push to try to change the park board map. Um, because I guess their one of their main objections was that they were being separated from their namesake lakes or something to that effect. Um, I think it was mostly that they were actually moving um, from, they had been in Park District 4, I think they were being moved to Park District 6. And But yeah, one of the reasonings they gave for why that was bad was that, you know, Cedar Lake and Lake of the Isles would no longer be in their same district. And that was... I didn't uh, 
Commissioner Forney like do a try to pull a fast one with that? I don't remember the details exactly, uh, but Park Board then Park Board President. I don't know if she's still Park Board President. Uh, Forney did appear to testify, as did what I can't remember his name, the attorney for the Park Board. Um, but and I Brian Rice. Yeah, but I think they were. I think officially speaking, in their capacity as private citizens. Yeah, and they were speaking at the Charter Commission meeting that was officially adopting it. Very last minute push that seemed weird. And I think the thing that made it memorable for me was that I was the one who had made the move, proposed the move in the first place. Oh. So oh. I kept them at, I, I'm just waiting for uh, Cedar Isles D Neighborhood Association to name me public enemy number one. Yeah, right Right after opposing uh, bike lanes on Hennepin Avenue, Jonathan Kim is public enemy number one for Cedar Isles <laughs> Dean, I think. <laughs> okay. Jonathan, this has been a pleasure to meet you and thank talk you. about uh, rent stabilization and a little bit of redistricting. Uh, thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you. It's been an honor to be on a podcast that I listen to a lot. Oh, well, it's an honor to have you as a listener. Look <laughs> at us. We we love each other here. <laughs> yes. This has been it's been the Wedge Live podcast. I'm your host John Edwards. Uh, thank you to Jonathan Kim and thank you to all of you for listening. This is a real real thing. Real 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 thing. We're in the Wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.